0: Hear me, good. Okay, um, so tonight I want to kind of preface, sort of the same way that I did last week, that uh, we're in the middle of a study, and we're kind of in the middle of a really strange part of the study. Hence the title at the very top of your page there, if you've got one when you came in there on the stands, uh, called "Strange." That's really where we are at tonight. That's what we're looking at, and so um, we. Kind of a long story short, over the last few months, we have kind of undertaken a study of just knowledge of God, just understanding what God has revealed to us in His Word. And that's not necessarily an approach where we go, where we take one book and study it exhaustively like kind of we do on Sunday morning. But more that we we start with, here's something that God has revealed about Himself, and then we see where He has revealed that in the scriptures. What we got from uh, understanding the Bible and that it's the uh, inerrant, infallible Word of God and that it's authoritative for our life and we can apply it to our life, we moved then to understanding God the Father and we we saw some different things about Him and thought really pretty deeply about who God is and, and who He's revealed Himself to be in His Word. And then we moved to His created order and so we talked about creation and the world around us. We went through Genesis 1 and 2 for a couple weeks. And now we've moved to uh, the unseen realm. At some point, we had to kind of dive into the unseen realm and just say, what does the Bible actually say about God's created but unseen world? And so we have kind of undertaken that. And we're, uh, we, the first part of the, 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 the kind of strange sort of series was sort of the usual stuff that you normally hear. Here's um, God and then angels and demons and Satan and what, what do we think about all those and what have we been told about all those and what do we know to be true about all those? And then we move from the kind of the usual stuff to then sort of the unusual stuff. There's some passages in Scripture that as we study them and as we read them, they just, to be quite honest, they don't make a whole lot of sense. When you read them, you go, what that doesn't—I don't understand what it's talking about there. And a lot of times we just sort of go past it and just maybe even pretend like we didn't read that, <laughs> or or maybe that, that clearly means something that I'm not seeing, and we just kind of keep going. And but but it turns out when it, especially when it comes to the unseen realm, some of those passages are really quite important for helping us understand a really a biblical worldview, the the worldview, the 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 unseen worldview of the biblical writers and the way that they are depicting what's happening in the unseen realm. And it helps, I think, when we look at it the way they're looking at it, I think it helps to make sense of some of those passages that seem to be, to us to be a little bit obscure. And so tonight what we're going to do, I'm going to review for just a minute to kind of track with what we've said so far, the main things that we've said so far. And then what we're going to do is just go into, we're going to start going into some of these Somewhat strange passages, and look at them. And, and this is only the beginning of the strange passages. We'll go in the next couple of weeks. Next week is business meeting, but the week after that, we'll re- we'll continue, and we'll look at some of the some more strange passages and help us kind of make sense of those. And um, and you know, hopefully, we'll be able to exhaust a lot of those kinds of uh, unseen realm strange passages. <laughs> All right. Um, so basically, what we've said so far is that we tend to have this view of the unseen realm, the spiritual world, in a relatively flat hierarchy. And what I mean by that is most of the time we look at it as here's God, uh, G- God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead uh, at the top, and then underneath, the, uh, underneath him is, uh, you know, angels, and then kind of, we just sort of cast them all as angels angelic figures and then there's the good side of the angels and the bad side of the angels and so we know that and then part of the bad side of the angels is satan Uh, he he's over there and then you know michael and gabriel they're over here on the good side and then there's some strange creatures that we see in ezekiel revelation a couple other places that are weird. We don't know what to make of cherubim, seraphim, um, some creatures with a bunch of eyes and, and have wheels for feet and all this kind of thing. We, we're not sure what to say about them, but they, they all kind of, we just sort of cast them all as sort of angelic, and then we move on, right? And then we go into the seen world. And so that kind of exhausts where, what we usually depict of the unseen world. Um, but it's clear that there, there's more than that in the unseen world, that there's a sort of a hierarchy that's somewhat alluded to and sometimes just explicitly stated in the Bible that we're not quite sure what to do with. There's this group that is referred to in the Old Testament by the term Elohim. Now typically when we hear the word Elohim, all of us translate it the same way, God. Okay, we just, and if it's not talking about Yahweh, Elohim, we just put the little g on it, and that tells us everything we need to know right there, right? And so when we, when the Bible uses the word Elohim, or the, the Old Testament uses the word Elohim, and it's translated with a little g, God, we typically think in our minds, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but most of us probably go to a little wooden statue that somebody took inside their home and worshiped or a big statue that somebody put inside of a temple and bowed down to. And that is the extent of it. It's this wooden object or this gold object or whatever that people put in temples and bow down to. But that's not what we find actually in the Scriptures. As the Scriptures use the word Elohim, there's a spiritual group of beings that it refers to as Elohim. Now, it does not the, the Bible does not think that this, this term Elohim makes them eternal, omniscient, worthy of worship, or anything like that. That's not what it's saying. It's just that the term Elohim for a Hebrew is a little bit broader than the word God would signify to us. Does that make sense? Tracking with me so far? And so they use this term quite broadly for a number of beings in the spiritual realm. They use the term for Yahweh Elohim. We know he is exclusive There's no one like him. He is all by himself, uncreated, eternal, all-knowing, omnipresent, um, um, omnipotent. I'm trying to think of all the omnis, but uh, he's he's uh, he's these things, and he is alone in that. And these Elohim are not that, okay? But they are a category of spiritual being in the spirit in the in. The spiritual realm. And these Elohim, they, they're referred to with a, a dozen different, uh, or the term Elohim is referred to a dozen different uh, spirits or so in the spiritual realm. And clearly, you know, you have Yahweh that stands alone, but these other Elohim are given some form of rule and governance and reign of some sort. They clearly have a, a a little bit of a higher rank, if you will, than angels. We'll see that tonight. Hopefully, we'll see that tonight. Um, and, and so they have a, a little bit different job description. But then we take it another step, and since they have a little bit of rule and some sort of a there's some sort of a ruling body, as it were, we also see that they come together with God. God assembles them and calls them a divine council. We see this in Job 1. We see this in several places throughout Scripture. We'll talk about it in a few weeks. But we see this in many places throughout Scripture. God assembles this divine council of what he calls the sons of God, the Elohim. Um, They're referred to as a couple of different ways in, in Scripture. And then we go a step further. We know that there was some sort of rift, let's put it that way, in amongst the divine council, where the sons of God in some way rebel. We read this last week in Psalm 82. I would recommend, if you're catching up with us, we podcast this, uh, all of this stuff. So you can go on our website under resources and you can look at our Wednesday night Bible study and sort of catch up where we've been cause in case some of this is confusing. But in, um, in Psalm 82, uh, 1 to 7, God takes his seat on the throne in amongst the divine council. And in Psalm 82, he tells them, uh, you are gods, I've called you gods, and yet you don't judge righteously, you don't punish the wicked, you don't do any of these things you're supposed to do, so you're going to die like men, he tells them. And a lot of people have done really weird things with that in the past and translated it really weird, but it seems as though he's actually talking to a rebellious uh, divine council, a, a, a group of, that are commonly referred to as Elohim. But then we also take it a step further and we see in Deuteronomy 32 as Moses is laying out um, some, uh, some things that God has done. He's tracing God's action with Israel over the past. He goes back to Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel and he says God divided up the nations according to the sons of God. We saw last week that the the nations had come together and they started building this temple. And God told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth after the flood, right? He tells he sends them abroad. And they go instead and don't, they're not fruitful, they're not multiplied, they don't fill the earth. They go and collect in one spot and they start building a temple uh, to really pagan gods. And so they start building this tower and they say, Hey, we're gonna be amazing, we're gonna be awesome. And uh, God comes down to see it, and he's like, now we're going to scatter your language (laughs) and kind of force you to go abroad. But what Moses says in Deuteronomy 32 is that God actually divvied them up amongst the sons of God. So here's the rebellious sons of God, here's the rebellious people, and he kind of gives them both to each other as judgment. And so what we talked about last week is that there seems to be this worldview coming From the Old Testament and from the Old Testament writers of what is typically referred to as cosmic geography, where there's these, um, uh, if you will, uh, Elohim, these sons of God, these angelic type figures that have principalities. They have areas in which they are kind of over, in charge of, they have some sort of rule and influence over. And uh, and, and so we're going to see tonight ha- how some of that plays into the scriptural texts and where we see some of that. Maybe we've just skipped over in the past. But it's this kind of cosmic geography where the sons of God or the Elohim were apportioned territories over which they rule and have some sort of authority as a judgment to really both the people who sought pagan gods and, and, um, and the, the, the sons of God themselves who were uh, also rebellious. And, um, and it's clear that it's judgment because Yahweh then says... And I'm going to take a people for my own. Y'all can have each other. I'm going to take a people for my own. And uh, and so this this kind of leads us into or leads us into after Genesis 11 a very interesting um, uh, story arc that will end in Revelation that I think is really kind of just mind boggling how all of this sort of fits together. But um, which will kind of unfold over the coming uh, over the coming months and things like that. But um, we're gonna let's go into scripture tonight and let's just look at some of these passages. And in thinking that way, if you're looking at the world and you're thinking it, the the spiritual world, if you're in the first century and you're looking at it and you're assuming that there are principalities, there are unseen beings that do have some sort of influence. Over the world and over particular territories, I think when you read these passages, you go that that makes a lot of sense as to why they say this or why they do this. So here's Paul in Acts seventeen twenty six. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. I didn't include the scriptures because some of them get really really long, and so I didn't include them all on a sheet like I normally do on a cheat sheet. So uh, just go ahead. There's pew. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you want to turn there. But Acts seventeen twenty six. Um. Here Paul is saying, you're probably all familiar with this. You've seen this before. We probably haven't spent too much time on it. But in verse 26, he's telling the men of Athens, uh, and he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the earth, uh, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, what does that refer to? What's what's that What's his determining of the allotted boundaries of their dwelling place? Where did God do that? Where did God scatter the nations determining their allotted boundaries and dwelling places?
1: Well,
0: last week you referenced yeah, I, I think this is, this is probably what Paul is referring back to is the Tower of Babel, that he determined its dwelling place. Um, he says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. What's interesting that happens right after Babel in Genesis 12 3. Okay, you remember Genesis 12? What happens in Genesis 12? What's, what story does that start? Do you remember? Abraham. Genesis 12 is the beginning of Abraham. He makes to Abraham a promise and he says to Abraham, Through you, you remember? All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so what we what we see, I think, is de- definitely the beginning of this massive story arc in Genesis is God says, here's for judgment. He, you you want to you worship pagan gods? Okay, judgment. You, you two deserve each other and kind of separates them out, it scatters them abroad. But I'm going to collect a people for my own self. I'm going to create a people for my own self. And he creates a people out of Abraham. And he tells Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So God is sort of depicting a backdoor approach to the nations, if you will, where it's, it's, here's the nations, they're going to be scattered abroad, and they're given to the sons of God, but I'm going to get them back, and I'm going to do so through Abraham. Through him, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Paul, again, will pick up on this theme in Galatians, and through whom were all the nations of the earth blessed. Well, through Abraham, yes, but through specifically whom? Jesus. All the nations of the earth are blessed. So Abraham starts this kind of arc that was going to continue on in Jesus. Um, But but let's go on. Daniel chapter 10. Um, All right. Daniel chapter 10 is one of those passages that... uh, I think more often than not, if we do read it or if we have read it, we go, I'm not sure what to do with that. Let's just keep going. Um, But I think if you're thinking in this sort of cosmic geography, some things that are said will make sense. Uh, Here is... I'm just going to read the whole chapter, but here it is. Uh, In the third year... Is everybody there? I mean, I'll wait until everybody gets there, but okay. Uh, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named... uh, Belteshazzar, Uh, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. It's 21 days. I was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day, so this is three days after that three weeks is uh, over, uh, on the twenty fourth day of the of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from euphaz around his waist. His body was like a barrel. His face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs, Like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words, like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. And I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. That was 21 days ago, remember. Your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face to the ground and was mute, and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, uh, one having the appearance of man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly love, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And he said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I, tell, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, uh, against these except Michael, your prince." That's usually one of those chapters where we just kind of go, what does chapter 11 say? <laughs> in the book of Daniel, we get no relief, okay, because <laughs> you go to chapter 11, and it's, it's even more confusing. But there's this, there's this terminology in here where, so Daniel, let's just sum up the chapter, kind of what, what's happening, or as best we can. Um, Daniel has set his heart to prayer for 21 days, and what eventually ends up happening? So it seems to be on the twenty fourth day. We're not sure if he started praying on the first day of the month. I don't think, but uh, he he he. Um, twenty four days later, he get, he has this vision of this angel, and the angel tells him, uh, "You know, I would have been here sooner. Sorry, I'm late, uh, but I, <laughs> I would have been here sooner, but I was resisted by the prince of Persia." All right, and uh, so some, some people would say, "Well, maybe that's that's a human." The uh, guy sort of resisted him, maybe, uh, but, but it, it's clear that he uses that term prince to refer to Michael, who we know is an angel, and uh, I think people are pretty unanimous that this is, an, and this is an angel, and he's being resisted by an angel who is called a prince, and he's over Persia, and he was resisted by this angel from coming to, to Daniel for 21 days, and so They fought. And then in the midst of their fight, uh, Michael, the archangel, came over. or Michael, one of the chief of princes, come, you see that in verse 13, and he comes over to give him some help. And so Michael then resists the prince of Persia so that this angel can get free and go see Daniel. Clear as mud, right? Um, uh, see, I, I think if we step back and we take the worldview Of what the way they understand, which I think is right. I think they understand it rightly. Okay, I think we're the ones that are the problem, not them. But I think if you take their understanding of the unseen realm, it's it's uh, it's much more complex. That there are uh, angelic figures that have power and control over particular areas, and in this particular case the two, it, it got into a fight. What's wrong with that? <laughs> Seems pretty straightforward, right? Now, we have all sorts of questions, right? Like, what does that look like? What does it look like when two angels fight? How can, a, how can, if this is what God is wanting this angel to do, how can the other angel stand in his way? And what like, why does that happen like that? And we're, to be honest, we're not really told those answers. All we do know is that, that there is clearly some sort of battle lines that are drawn in the unseen realm that are strictly adhered to. And so it's for us to say, okay, <laughs> right? And we do see this pop up again somewhat in Revelation when Michael and his angels fight against the devil and his angels. There's a war going on in heaven, and who loses that war? Satan loses that war. He and his angels are kicked down to earth. And the angels celebrate. How, that, how you can look at that or what that looks like, I don't know. We don't, we're not told. But we are told that it does happen. And I think that's what's going on in Daniel. I think that helps us to make sense of, of that passage in Daniel. Now, there's other complexities in Daniel we're not going to get into. But, but certainly I think that that's the way it's understood and it sort of makes sense. Does anybody have questions about that? Okay, Doug. A uh, a thousand, but they're all on the topic. Okay, <laughs> good. Okay. So if it's true that uh the demons in the air wherever they are can hinder Daniel's
1: prayer, whatever my prayer. Yeah. Like, and that in context <laughs> with the fact that when uh the when when Jesus um did his work on the cross and s you see uh power of Satan diminish. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, we'll get into this in more detail in a couple weeks uh, when we start, and I always say that, and we do, we do get there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we will get into more detail in a couple weeks about this, but suffice it to say there is a significance in the Great Commission, in what Jesus says in the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and what's the implication of it? Go. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a significant change in all of this that takes place with Jesus' work in the resurrection, specifically. Right? Does that make sense? So, when that happens... It's, it's sort of strange otherwise. Why couldn't you go and make disciples until then? Why were you restricted in any way to the nations until then? It's at the resurrection, at the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew, that Jesus gives them the charge. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Then he tells them in Acts, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Then we start seeing Gentiles come to faith in Christ. And we start seeing a whole bunch of stuff unleashed in Acts that we didn't see before. And uh, so we're going to get into more detail in that. But, but essentially, I think that's incredibly significant in regards to this. So I think that what that means for us is that when it comes to um, going into foreign territory, there is no foreign territory for us. There is no foreign territory. There's no... There's no um, there's no, I'm not saying that, that, that demonic influence isn't present. I'm saying that we're not restricted in, this, in the way that there was some sort of obvious restriction in the Old Testament. Nor could I really go into a lot of detail about what that restriction was in the Old Testament or what it really looked like, because I wasn't alive back then. But, uh, but, but I would say that I think that's significant. I think that's the big change, or that's a big change. Any other questions about that? Obviously, there's tons. Yeah, Jeff? On verse ten, or at the end, 10? the end of chapter ten, the end of chapter ten, verse twenty-one. Uh, he he says he says what? No one supports me them except Michael, your yes. Does that mean that like God's forces were kind of like dwindling, like the majority of the angels that like rebelled against him, and he had like just this pocket in this high side left? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think that's what he means there, uh, but I'm not entirely sure what all he does mean, but I, I think his point is that Michael is contending for Israel um, and we that he is sort of uh, his territory, as it were, is God's people, I think. Um, okay, so then uh, let's go to 2 Kings. And chapter 5, 15. Um, so you remember the story of, uh, of Naaman? Naaman has leprosy. Naaman goes to Elisha, the prophet. And he gets healed by Elisha. And he, well, Elisha doesn't even come out to see him. He just go, he goes to the prophet, and, and Elisha doesn't even come out. He just says, go bathe in the river. And the guy's like, couldn't I could have just bathed in the river at home? Did I have to make a journey? Surely he needs to come out here and, you know, whip up some sort of miracle. And the people that are with him go, I mean, shouldn't you just try it? Like, <laughs> shouldn't you just, I don't know, take a dip and see what happens? I mean, see if it works. And so, of course, he, he's like, yeah, I guess. I mean, I came all this way, you know. And so he gets in the river and he bathes and, and he's clean. His response to this healing is super strange, okay? Starting in verse 15, he says, Then he returned to the man of God, Naaman, returned to the, the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel." So accept now a present from your servant. That's not all that weird. Give, pay the guy, right? I'd be glad to pay you for your service. But he said, "As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none." Elisha is a good prophet, and he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, "If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth." For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. Well, of course. Isn't that what you would do? If you had just been healed? Can I have some dirt, please? Well, that's really weird. Uh, I'd I, I, I take two mule loads of dirt. Can I just take as much dirt as I can possibly uh, carry back with me? And he says, In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm. And I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. Okay. <laughs> I think what's going on here, it was similar kind of similar to a passage we're about to read in just a second, is Naaman realizes Elisha's not going to take any money. For this he can't pay him back. He can't give tribute essentially to the Lord's servant. And so the question then is: Since I know that there is no other God in the rest of the world, but this is the God of Israel is the God is the is the God. He has the power to do this. Give me some earth from Israel. Can I take back with me some of the territory that this God is over? And the I presume probably what he's saying about the whole temple thing is that he's going to take that dirt and probably put it under his knees as he bows so that what he's standing on is holy ground, okay? Because this is where the Lord, this is the dirt from the Lord's country, all right? Like most Texans would talk about Texas, all right? It's, it's God's country, okay? When you, when you cross over, you just know. It's, it, this is clearly true. Uh, but, you know, that kind of thing. But, uh, but it's similar. He's taking the, the mule loads of dirt and he's going back to his country. He's taking God's earth with him when he goes. Otherwise, how do you make sense of this? What is he doing? He's taking dirt from from this this area. I think it's because, again, coming back to this cosmological geography that we're looking at, um, God is over this special people, and this is his territory. And so if I cannot pay you, if I cannot give tribute to the Lord in that way, then allow me, please, to take uh, some of his territory back with me, so that it's with me wherever I go. Yeah, Tra- what's that? Yeah, 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 an embassy. Let me take an embassy with me. Uh, let me, let me, let me take a consulate with me back where I go. And and yeah, go ahead, Doug. That's why I said it's about. It's kind of like a passage we're about to read because this is very similar to something that happens to David. In it wouldn't seem similar. I don't think if you just read it, but if you think about it, it really is kind of closely connected, especially to what Doug said. Go to Second Kings. Uh, sorry, not Second Kings. I'm on the wrong page. On the back there, First Samuel twenty six. 1 Samuel twenty six seventeen. Now you remember after David kills Goliath, they they hear you know everybody in the land is saying Saul's killed his thousands, David is ten thousands. It's, David's building this sort of reputation, and uh, and well Saul doesn't really like it, and so Saul's out to kill him. And so David has run from Saul on a number of occasions, and uh, on one occasion he has a he has an opportunity to t- take his life, and he doesn't. Um, and so Saul says Saul recognizes David's voice in verse seventeen. Saul recognized David's voice. Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, O Lord, O King. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if if it is men... May the Lord may, may, uh, they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall on the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel uh, has come out to seek a single flea uh, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. So what is David saying here? Hey, here, so if it's the people that have sent me out and it's not you, then let them be cursed because what have they done to me? What does he say they did to him? Yeah, in fact, the, even further than that. They sent me to serve other gods. Okay, on what planet does David leave the area and go serve other gods. I mean, none. Like we, we wouldn't. A man after God's own heart. We hear he's God's chosen one, an anointed. He's going to be king, and he's turned over to serve other gods. Well, how do you make sense of what David is saying? And and further, he says, you know, I, don't let me die out here and where I'm not a part of. I have no share in the heritage of the Lord. Same word that's used back in Deuteronomy where he's using the people. I've carved out these people as my inheritance, my heritage. Uh, The people of God in his land under his rule are his people. And if I'm not in his land, then I'm not in his domain. I'm not in his territory. I'm out in the territory of other gods. I can't serve the Lord. I can't worship the Lord unless I'm back there in his place. And so you've left me out here uh, really to fend for myself and to serve other gods, essentially, is what David is saying. Similar to what Doug, I think, was the point you were making. Is that right? Similar point you're making. Is that it is through uh, God's people in God's place that you come under God's rule. This is why, you know, on Sunday, we use that phrase over and over again, God's people and God's place under God's rule as coming into his kingdom, because what's very clear is happening in Matthew is that's opening up to the nations. You can come under God's rule and his reign because his place is earth, is all of it, anywhere. So there's not an ounce of, there's not a square inch of China that doesn't belong to the Lord. There's not a square inch of Alabama that doesn't belong to the Lord. It's all God's country against my fellow Texans. It's, It's all God's country, right? All of it is. And so that's what's opened up in the New Testament. Paul still uses the terms when he refers to demonic powers. He still refers to them as having some sort of rule, principalities, powers, dominions, thrones the terms that he uses for the demonic powers is still this kind of cosmological geography that he's referring to where they have power over a group of people but in this case it's simply the unbelieving that they've influenced not a particular uh geographical place because christ owns it all all authority has been given to him um questions about that yes jen There's a the day coming. Yeah. Yeah. There's a day coming. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Now, if you think about the Old Testament through this world, this this lens, that this is the lens a a, a Jew is looking at the unseen realm, uh, there's going to be a lot of those strange passages you come across and you go. I think I know what they're talking about. It sort of makes a little bit more sense of some of these things. Now, I'm not saying everything just all of a sudden becomes crystal clear. There's still confusing passages and and not sure what to make of it, but I think that's the worldview that they're, they're looking through. Go ahead, Doug. Um, yeah, to be honest with you, I don't know many Messianic Jews, and so I haven't had a ton of dialogue with them uh, on, on that kind of front. I would probably not be the best one to, to speak on that, but um, it sounds plausible to me that, that they don't see that um, in, in what, what's happened to Jesus, but I'm not sure. I'm not totally sure. Yeah. Um, now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about The typical understanding of Satan, his creation, and his fall. And I said back then that what is addressed there is definitely an earthly king. We definitely see an earthly king referenced there in both uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But there is a little bit more. So you know when we talked about that, it's clear that he's referencing the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. And then Ezekiel 28, he has a reference to the king of Tyre. But there also seems to be a lot more. And you also know that church history has given us the story of Satan and his fall. That he rebelled against God and that he fell to the earth and all of these kinds of things. And typically Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 are always used as reference points for that story. And you go back to it, and you go, well, well, he's talking about the king of Babylon here, and he's talking about the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. So how how do the two connect? Again, if we think about cosmological geography, then we go back into those passages, and there's something similar happening, What, what the author is depicting, is a relationship between this earthly king of Babylon, or of Tyre, and the ruler of that domain. All right, so let's take a look at those. Isaiah 14, let's go back there. Um, Isaiah 14, he says, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Uh, let, let, let's keep going. Let's go down to verse three. Let me, let me start there uh, in the, in the, for the sake of time. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard uh, service with which you, he, you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. All right. So this is reference to the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet they break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. That's a great picture, right? The dead kings uh, of the of the earth, well, right now it's just the dead, uh, are all under the earth. You have died and you're going down to Sheol and they're all like pulling up the blinds to watch you walk down the road. Okay. Um, uh, and all who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you have become as weak as we, like there's a taunt that they're taking up. They're, they're teasing this guy as he's, as he's, as he's fallen. Um, And he says, uh, you have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Okay. It's pretty great, right? Uh, The the picture there is just, is, is really rich. Here are the dead kings that have all tormented Israel, and they're raising up a taunt against the fallen king of Babylon. But then the story turns just a little bit. And in verse 12, and you'll probably notice even in your Bibles, there's a little space there, a little bit extra space, signifying this may be a different section, okay, that we're talking about here. And it is. It is is a parallel turn, all right, that's taking place here. He says, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, uh, son of the dawn. Uh, How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. You remember where that phrase, stars of God, is used before? We covered this a couple of weeks ago. Job 38, 7. "I I laid the foundations of the earth and the stars of God rejoiced. The stars of broke out into singing. He's talking about the angelic chorus that broke out at creation. Here, same term is used for these. This star who sees himself as brighter than the rest, and I will exalt myself above all the other uh, uh, all all the other uh, stars of God. I will exalt myself above. I will set my throne high. Uh, I will sit on the mount of what? Assembly, right? There it is. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly uh, in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I will make myself like God. See, what, what I think is happening here in Isaiah, and again, there are multiple interpretations of this. But other people will do different things with this, but I think what's going on here is here the, the Babylonian king has fallen, and the one that has also fallen, like him, in similar fashion, is one who also said, I will set my throne above the most high. Um, here Babylon has come into God's land and conquered God's people, and here in the heavenlies, if you will, here one of the day stars, one of the sons of God has said the same thing. I will conquer God, right? It's a mirrored effect. And what is the result of both of them? They both fall down and are eaten like maggots. We saw in, in uh, Psalm 82, where God tells the sons of God, you will die like men, right? I think same thing is happening here. It's a very similar thing. Here are these this, um the influencer over Babylon is falling with, uh, with the king of Babylon. Does that make sense? So Satan well, that, that's a good question. Um, potentially, yeah. Uh, so I think what the church has done is said, well, that's, that is Satan that's depicted there. And, and I, I'm inclined to believe that. And I, I would say, yeah, that, that's probably a good reading of it. And the, and the reason is because of the way Babylon functions in Scripture as the chief protagonist from beginning Tower of Babel Tower of Babylon is really what it is Tower of Babylon all the way to the very end the city of Babylon Revelation Um, they function as this and the chief of the city of Babylon is Satan so uh, I would think that that's probably right yeah Um, Ezekiel 28 is similar can we read that next week because we're getting we're getting close on time are there any questions we'll start with Ezekiel 28 next week yeah Oh man, I'd have to go back and look, but I, I don't know a time where it wasn't, where it was. I mean, it's, it's going to be really early, really, really early. I'd, I'd, I'd struggle to come up with a date right now, but it, it's going to be really early. That interpretation, maybe not specifically of Isaiah 14, but that story of Satan falling like that is. And I think more of that story comes from Ezekiel 28 than from Isaiah 14. But I think Isaiah 14 sort of kind of helps Ezekiel 28 along and says, Yeah, us too. You know, (laughs) that kind of a thing. Yeah. Any other questions about that? This is really kind of hard stuff to to think through. But yeah, go ahead. Why were they, yeah, why were they wandering for so long? Yeah. And what is God doing when he's keeping? Now, God could have killed off a generation in the land, yes? He could have brought them into the land and said, okay, you're going to die here. But he didn't. He left them out of the land and let them wander. And then when he went in, when they went in, what were they supposed to do? Kill everyone. Don't leave anyone left. What did they do instead? They did leave people. And why did he say kill everyone? Otherwise, you will serve other gods. So leaving them out of the land is significant. This is my place. You're not allowed to go in. You're just going to take another lap around the desert. It's interesting, I think. I think and I think that's the way it's, I think the, the Bible is pointing. Now, obviously, every passage that we talk about... Um, tonight this is this is I, I'm try, I try to make this clear as I go through it the first few weeks we were talking about God created everything clearly there's satanic rule and authority there's demonic rule and authority there's clearly uh, angels that are ministering spirits and things like that we set those parameters there's clearly some creatures that are also in Ezekiel and Revelation and those things we know for sure there's no there's no question about that when we read the scriptures we know that that's true okay the stuff that's sort of in the unusual, there's the interpretations of this are somewhat varied. OK, you could disagree with me and not see the passages the way I see them or maybe not see them the, all the way that we're flushing them out. And that's OK. OK, this is sort of what we would call open handed. I think this is the direction that it's pointing or I wouldn't talk about it, but I could be wrong. OK, <laughs> so it's, I just I, but I really do think this is probably the worldview that they're they're. Coming from when it comes to the unseen realm. And I think it's I think it's helpful when it comes to some of these passages to understand it that way. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, I think, you know, if as far as points though, when we when we come away from this, uh, the question that Doug brings up, the, the, the point of all of this, especially when it comes to the unseen, is that there's nothing to fear. That has to be the driving point. In Christ. There is nothing to fear, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. A lot of times we interpret that as all authority on earth has been given to me. That's not what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. There's nothing that prohibits us anymore. There's nothing that we have to fear. Right? That that makes sense? The thing that we have to fear says... Yeah. So we shouldn't worry that our prayers are going to be hindered because we have the Holy Spirit within us. Yes. He intermediates for us. Yeah. Um, intercedes with groanings, too deep for words. Um, good grief. Uh, when we confess our sins, we have Christ the advocate, right? Uh, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2. I mean, there's just, there's just nothing. We are called to live a life of holiness, righteousness, and obedience, coming under God's rule and his reign, which is in all places. And as long as we do that, we have no fear, right? We do have an enemy who's seeking to devour us, and we do have sin with which we need to keep not only at arm's distance but not touch it with a 10-foot pole, right? So we encourage one another in lives of holiness we admonish one another when we've stepped out of bounds and we, we, because of that reason, because we're we under God's rule and his reign and we're kingdom citizens and that's the way we are to, to live. Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I'm grateful to just look at Scripture and um, think, think deeply about it, about what it says and, and, and really what it means, the implications of it. And... Um, Lord, we're grateful that, that you have all authority and all power. And we don't have to be in a certain geographical region to submit to your rule. We don't have to be in a particular place to hear from you. We can open up your word and hear from you. And you have given us, what a tremendous gift you have given to us. The gift of the Holy Spirit, what a tremendous gift you've given to us. And we will spend the rest of our lives exploring the depths of the gifts that you've given to us. So I thank you for that. And I pray that we, as a body with competence, can leave this place and know that there's nothing significant about these walls that is, is, uh, makes it... Special in any way or different from the outside world. Um, But that you go with us wherever we go. What an encouragement that is. And we're grateful for that. And may we really believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.